you have your Bible, find John chapter 13. So we're steadily making our way through the Gospel of John this school year, and like I said last week, we've sort of now turned a, a corner in the book where uh, it, it practically comes to a screeching halt in terms of writing space devoted to time covered. Um, whereas the first 12 chapters cover uh, a whole three years of Jesus' life and ministry, the last nine chapters cover essentially one week, more or less. That's, that's kind of remarkable, and it's something to take note of. It's kind of like the book of Genesis. It's not something we just see here. It's kind of like the book of Genesis, where if you're familiar with the, the book of Genesis, you have the first 11 chapters just flying through um, time, beginning with the creation of the world through uh, centuries of generations, uh, populating and, and spreading out all over the world and, and on this universal and worldwide scope. I mean, just flying, first 11 chapters. Come to chapter 12, and it comes to a screeching halt on one dude in the whole world, Abraham. And then for the last 38 chapters, spends time on Abraham and his family, his immediate family. So in this 50-chapter book, 38 chapters, one guy and his family, where the first 11 are just on the whole world. And so it's kind of what we see here in John on a smaller scale, and it's good to be mindful of that kind of, that kind of dynamic going on when you read your Bible. When you read your Bible, you need to pay attention to time markers. A lot of times the biblical authors, John has been very purposeful to do this, give you a time marker. This, this was taking place at this time. This was taking place when this was happening. And other gospel writers do that. Read your Bible slowly enough that you notice things like that because this is an important dynamic. When you see time moving along in a story in the, in the, in the scriptures, moving along at a good pace and a good clip, and then all of a sudden the, the author slows way down, you know that it, he's about to highlight something, give focus to something that's really important. And in that case, uh, in this case, John is highlighting the events of Jesus' final week, where we are right now, really the final days of that final week, that they're going to culminate in his death and, and uh, resurrection. And in these chapters, beginning with chapter 13 and then 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 even, uh, that are leading up to his cross and resurrection, here we have his final words of instruction, teaching of Jesus to his disciples, we call this, as I mentioned last week, a lot of times the, the upper room discourse. Um, they're in the upper room sharing a meal together before the Passover. And what we have here is some, I think, the most urgently important words from Jesus in the Gospels. All the words of Jesus, of course, are true, but these just have an urgency about them, them being the last of his commandments and, and words to them. There's a weightiness to them. Last week, we began looking at this discourse in the first half of chapter 13. Today, we're going to look at the second half. So, and with it, we come to one of the more well-known passages in John, I think, is what, we, what he says in verses 34 and 35. That's sort of the centerpiece of the passage. And in my view, what he says in 34 and 35 uh, informs all of what we're going to see here. So, uh, and for that reason, if you're familiar with what it says, the new commandment I give you that you love one another, that's sort of the unmistakable theme. We talked about the love of Christ last week from the first um, 
from the first half. You remember how the chapter began in verse 1 where, where we were told uh, in chapter 13, verse 1, uh, Jesus knew that his hour had come, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And I, I said that that phrase, love them to the end, could be taken in, in a couple of ways. It could mean figuratively he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them uh, maximally, perfectly, without blemish, intensely, uh, which he did. It could also mean that he loved them to the very end of his life, which was right at the, at the brink of, of coming to place. I, I said then, I didn't, I didn't think there was a compelling reason to choose one of those meanings over the other. I think John, like he does often in his gospel, means both by them. He often chooses words or phrases intentionally with more than one shade of meaning so that in very economic way he can mean both. But um, as we come to the second half of the chapter, it's still the same conversation. So not surprisingly, our theme again this morning is going to be on the love of Christ. Um, and in particular, I want to highlight three characteristics of the love of Christ that I think are, are brought to manifest in this second half of the chapter. Um, yeah, not, not just characteristics that he displayed toward his own disciples, but then also characteristics that he expects his disciples to display toward one another. Right? So I think, I think we need to think carefully about this, both for our own encouragement to see how does Jesus love us, but then for our own exhortation. How does he expect us to love one another? So let's read the passage, and um, then we'll dive into the, what those characteristics are. Again, John 13, we're going to begin in verse 21 and, and read through the end of the chapter. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the brother of Simon Iscariot, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If, glor if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, 
but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your holy and inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us grace as we uh, submit ourselves to it. Give us grace to submit ourselves to it. Give us eyes to see the truth that's here. Give us minds to understand it, eyes to see Jesus clearly, minds to grasp what he's saying to us, hearts to embrace and love what he's saying to us and love him. Give us wills to obey what he so clearly calls us to do. Give us ears to hear. Give me the help that I need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're taking notes, uh, here's how I want us to divide up this passage that we just read to think through it. And the three characteristics of the love of Christ that I would like us to see. First of all, in the longest portion of this passage, verses 21 through 30, we see this truth. Jesus loves selflessly. Selflessly. I think we'll see this as he has his final dealings with Judas before he leaves the group. And in what Jesus says or also what he chooses not to say to the rest of his disciples in that passage. Jesus loves selflessly. Second, in the climactic instructions of the passage from verses 31 to 36, we see this truth. Jesus loves sacrificially. He loves sacrificially. I think we see that especially in two ways. One is going to be in a, uh, an allusion to an Old Testament passage that he makes there what that has to teach us. And then secondly, what he says to his disciples twice there about where he's going. Okay. And then thirdly and finally, in the most heart-wrenching words of the, of the whole passage, the last two verses, verses 37 and 38, I think we see this most beautiful truth. Jesus loves sympathetically. Jesus loves sympathetically. I think that is seen in the sobering but reassuring words of Jesus to Peter. Now, this is a rich passage for sure, but simple, really simple in its message and truth. So let's think about what this passage has to show us about the love of Christ. I hope you are as encouraged and challenged by this, this passage as I have been and am. Um, so let's think about, let's go back to the beginning of the passage and think first about the selfless love of Christ. Jesus loves selflessly. All right, to see this point, we need to pay careful attention to the opening, the opening words of the passage. So John opens in verse 21, if we're looking there again, and he says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, we'll come back in a minute to what I consider the most important words, the most important phrase in that verse. But it begins with, after saying these things, what things? All right, if we're just picking up from where we left off last week, in the context it seems most likely that these things, after saying these things, these things are what he just said in verses 18 and 19, where if you just look back there, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is quoting Psalm 41.9, referring to Psalm 41.9 and quoting it, uh, and he's prophesying through that and pointing out that David, the, the, the author of Psalm 41, was prophesying that one of 
Jesus' closest companions would betray him. And, uh, and I think that's what he's referring to in verse 21, especially since also he repeats it again in verse 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, it's interesting to note, I think, in this passage that, and we'll say more about this in a minute, but just it's like the disciples don't have any idea what he's talking about. They, just, they, don't, they don't have any idea. But for now, Jesus presses on in demonstrating that the prophecy of Psalm 41.9 would be fulfilled. And just for clarity's sake, this is what David in Psalm 41.9 says. Here, here's that verse. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. I think it's funny looking at this passage how uh, nobody knows who he's referring to and Peter, Peter wants to know who Jesus is talking about. And, but Peter doesn't ask him, does he? It says in verse 24 that Peter motioned to John to ask him. It's like it was an awkward silence when he says somebody's going to betray me and Peter's like looking at John. He's like making eye contact. You know, ask him. I think it, I, that's I don't know. A little stuff like that was hilarious. I mean, you know Jesus saw that. He probably rolled his eyes like, Peter, why don't you just ask me? But it tells us that at that point, um, Jesus literally acts out the words of that prophecy during their meal together. And, he, and, and they're like, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And Jesus says, literally, the, the one, I'm going to take this bread and I'm going to dip it. And the person I give it to, that's the person. And he does that. And at that point, it says Satan entered into Judas Satan had been active with Judas at that point, but now he's, he entered into Judas, and, and Jesus looks at Judas, and by extension, Satan says, what you must do, do quickly. But again, the disciples are completely unaware. I mean, it's kind of, we read this from our vantage point, it's kind of hard to fathom how in the world they couldn't get it. Like, one of you is going to betray me. Who? The one I take this bread, when I dip it, when I give it, that's the guy. And... He does that and still nothing. He gave it to Judas, and it literally tells us they assumed nothing negative about, about Judas. They, they're like, well, maybe he's got to go get some supplies. Maybe he's, gotta, maybe he's going to give some money to the poor, all good stuff. They have no clue. I don't always want to think the worst about his disciples. I try hard to think, how could they not have gotten it? And I, it's something, I don't know if you've ever had this, anything like this happen to you, though. I can kind of imagine a scenario in which they just didn't get it. Um, years and years ago, I was, uh, for some reason, I was at the home church of the parents of one of my best friends. Um, so I knew what church, one of my best friends, I knew where his parents went to church. For some reason, I was at that church visiting one particular Sunday. And I was across the sanctuary from them, and it was a kind of a crowded day, and it was during the meet. I, I knew his parents. His parents knew me. We had interacted many, many times. And it was during the meet and greet part of the service, and everybody stand up, and everybody's like looking around and waving. And in those days, you could actually shake somebody's hand. And um, during that, my friend's, my best friend's dad looked straight at me. I mean, just looked square in my face. It was such deliberate eye contact that I was about to lift my hand and, and wave at him. But at about the time I was going to wave at him, he just kept looking right on by like it did not even register with him that he was looking at his son's best friend like and he knew me um 
And I, I thought I, I could have been like offended by that. About those weird. I think it was because it was so far off his radar of expectation that I would be at this random place at his home church that even when he was looking square at me and knew who I was, it just didn't register that it was, that it was me, right? And I think for Jesus' disciples, it was so far off the radar of their expectation that one of them who had been following Jesus with them through thick and thin for three years would actually betray him. That it just didn't, it did not register with them what Jesus was saying, even when he acted it out in front of them. The one that I give this piece of bread to, here, Judas, right? I have no doubt that if they did get it, they would have tried to stop it, right? And, I, and that's the point. The point is this, Jesus, Jesus knew that they didn't get it, even when he told them, even when he acted it out in front of them. He knew they didn't get it, and so he just left them there. He just left them in that, in that ignorance. He knew they didn't get it, and he was cool with that. He left them purposefully in the dark. Why? Why? So that he alone would bear what he was about to bear. Jesus knew what was coming. And it's at that poignant moment in this chapter when Jesus knew that his disciples didn't get what he was saying. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew they didn't get it. He alone understood. And he was leaving them in that ignorance so that he could bear it alone. It's at that poignant moment in this chapter in verse 30 at the end where John just throws it in there that it was night. And it was night. I mean, you can feel that sentence. If you're reading this and you're reading it almost autobiographically as if you, could, you were there in that moment and the heaviness of that moment, and just out of the blue, John puts it in there and it says, and it was night. It was, it's just another one of those... I don't think it was just a meteorological observation that he was making, that it was in the PM. I think he was saying this was a dark moment. It was a heavy moment. Jesus was going to an anguish that we can't imagine, and he purposefully left his disciples ignorant of that, ignorant of that when he knew they didn't get it so that he alone would take it on himself. He would take on himself what he wanted to save them from. I want to I go back to the opening words of this passage in verse 21 and point out what I think are the most uh, significant w words of that, of that verse. Verse 21, after saying these things, and here they are, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. That word troubled is a word that's going to come up again in this same upper room discourse. It's going to come up more than once. Where? Well, the next time this word appears, troubled, it's, it's in chapter 14, verse 1, where Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. 
And again, chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus alone bore a troubled spirit over all that he was about to endure so that our hearts would not have to be troubled, that he could give his peace with us. Why did he do it? Why did he do it this way? The answer according to this chapter is love. Love. Clearly, the love of Christ is the centerpiece of this, of this passage. And even in this early part of it, John intentionally gives us glimpses of that. How does, how does John refer to himself? He does it many times in the book, but how does he refer to himself here? In verse 23, he, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's sure to, to highlight uh, the fact that he's, he's doing it out of love for them. John is, John is I, don't think, I think he's saying that to, to, to describe the, the selflessness uh, of action on Jesus' part. I think it's to highlight that what Jesus was doing was out of love for them. And John is so confident that Jesus loves him that throughout the book he refers to himself as the, the, one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's not, I don't think that's a, a cocky, self-exalting title that John gives himself. I think it's a Jesus-exalting one is to magnify the love of Jesus. I do believe that the mandate we see a few verses later, um, which we'll see in the next point in verses 34 and 35, to love others in the way that he has loved us, is, yes, to love others in the, in the selfless way, as Jesus does here. To take on himself uh, and to spare them from taking on what he was going to bear, bear for them. Yeah, and, and, and to love others in the way he's loved us. Yes, to, to love others in selfless ways that Jesus did here, but also to love them in obvious ways. I mean, John just had no doubt in his mind that Jesus loved him. Hey, I'm the one that Jesus loves. We're to love people in that way. Love people in such an obvious way so that whenever they are in your presence, in whatever circumstance, be it a happy circumstance, be it a hard circumstance, be it in, a, in, a, in an awkward circumstance, be it in a confrontational circumstance, be it whatever circumstance, when they are in your presence and they walk away from you, they don't have any doubt in their minds that you love them, right? People will feel that way when you consider them and you treat them as more important and more significant than yourself, which is what Jesus did here when you love them selflessly as Jesus loved his disciples. But it wasn't, it wasn't just that, that, that here. As you keep reading this passage, you also see that in a very closely related way, Jesus didn't just love them selflessly, he loved them sacrificially. So I see that especially in verses 31 to 36. Now I'll admit, when you first read verses 31 and 32, they are not the easiest to understand at first. Um... Now, I pray every time I teach the Scriptures, I, we pray and we confess that God's Word is inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. When we confess that Scripture is clear, that is not confessing that 
every passage is equally as clear as some other passage. That is not to say, that's not to deny that there are any difficult passages in the Scripture. It just means that whatever, whatever, uh, it just means, first of all, on the whole, even a child can read the Bible and understand it in the main. And also, when you do come to a difficult passage, almost always there is some other passage that helps shed light on that difficult passage and help you understand it, okay? But they're not, even on the surface, these are not, at first glance, easy to understand. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also, also glorify him, him in himself and glorify him at once. You're like, what? And it's going to leave you scratching your head. But what he's essentially doing there is stressing the unity of the Father and the Son. That when the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. When the Father, is, the Father is glorified by the Son being glorified, the Father is glorified in the Son, the Son is glorified in the Father. But he's also alluding, I believe, to an important passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49, where the stress is not just on the unity in God in carrying out this salvation, but also the unity between Christ and his people. If you want to, hold your place in John 13 and flip back to Isaiah chapter 49. The language of being glorified is alluding back to a passage here in specific verse 3 of Isaiah 49. But the, the context of Isaiah 49 is a, a prophecy of the coming Messiah, a prophecy of the coming Savior, who in these latter chapters of Isaiah is often referred to as the servant of the Lord, a suffering servant, uh, a servant who suffers for his people. And if you found Isaiah 49, follow along with me as I just read the first few verses, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That's the passage that Jesus was alluding to about being glorified glorified, the Father being glorified in him. The striking thing about that passage, those first three verses, uh, is that it is referring to a person, a person, the servant of the Lord, and all the pronouns are singular. And, and this person referred to, though, is, is, is called who in verse 3? Israel. Israel. What's that all about? I believe in the, in the context of Isaiah, in these later chapters of Isaiah, which we don't have time to elaborate on fully here, the point is that this messianic servant of the Lord will live and will act and suffer and die on behalf of all of his people. He is representing all of Israel, all of his people, in, 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 in his life and death and resurrection. And so, jumping back to John 13, if, if you don't mind, Jesus then immediately at the end, after making that allusion, at the end of verse 33, says, where I am going, you cannot come. Where is that? The cross first. 
right? And then the glory after that, the cross for, where's, where is Jesus going? The cross, and yet for the glory bef, uh, set before him, he endured the cross. So where I'm going, where is Jesus going? The cross, and then after that, the glory. And then Peter, down in verse 36, wants to know why Jesus won't tell them where he's going and why is he saying you can't come. And Jesus answers in this way, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And I think by that he means two things. One, that as we follow him, we will have to pick up our own cross and carry him daily as we follow him. But two, in a larger sense, Jesus is going to the cross so that we can have the glory with him, right? And he'll, as he'll put it in the next chapter, he is going to prepare a place for us. There is, we have to pick, pick up our cross daily and follow him, but Jesus did it in, a, in an infinitely different way than we have to do it, right? And he's going... Uh, if Jesus did not do what he did, then I could carry my cross every day of my life and never find any glory in it at the end of it. But because Jesus did what he did, there is glory waiting for me and for you at the end. He's going to prepare a place for us. And he's going to, what he means by that, he's going to give himself as a sacrifice and a substitution for us. And he looks at his disciples and us in verses 34 and 35 and says, love each other in this way. A new commandment I give to you. Really? I mean, this is all over the Old Testament. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. What? I mean, Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said in Mark 12, 28 to 33, he says, the whole Old Testament is summed up in these words. Love God and love your neighbor. Paul says in Romans 13, 8, the one who loves another fulfills the law. And again, in Galatians 5, 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's so all over the place in the Old Testament that John himself in 1 John chapter 2 says in one, in one sense, it's a really old commandment. So what is new about this new commandment? I think a couple of things. One, now it's more than just a commandment. Right? Now it is a commandment that comes with a physical demonstration of what it looks like. Just as I have loved you, so you are also to have love to one another. Now we can see God literally showing us what it looks like instead of just telling us to love our neighbor as ourselves. What does that look like? Jesus. And then a second way that it's new is not just because it comes with a, a physical demonstration of it, but now Jesus is repeating this really old commandment in a new covenant context. Why is that important? Because now, because of the, the operation of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, now, not only do you have the knowledge to love your neighbor as yourself, but you have the ability to love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus did. 
we can now love because he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, as John would say in 1 John 4, 19. And Jesus says, love each other like this. Everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love each other like this. Too often this is precisely not what characterizes the church in the eyes of the world. Look how they love each other. No. Uh-uh. We can't fix what other churches are doing or not doing, but we can start with ourselves. Right? And, and make sure that we love each other in, in such a way that it is a physical demonstration to the world of our love for each other, just as Jesus left us a physical demonstration of his love for us. But before we leave this passage, there's one more thing I want to see quickly, one more characteristic of the love of Jesus shown here in the last couple of verses of the chapter. We see finally Jesus loves sympathetically. Peter, still not understanding, he doesn't, he doesn't kind of like the insinuation that there's somewhere Jesus is going that he can't go that he won't go well so he protests in verse 37 hey i'm ready to go and die for you heartfelt in that moment i'm sure but then jesus sort of drops a bomb on peter in reply jesus peter just said i will lay down my life for you and jesus says peter you will literally deny following me you'll deny knowing me not once, not twice, three times. Oh, and before tomorrow morning. <laughs> I can't imagine what went through Peter's mind at that moment. Sometimes chapter divisions get in the way. What are the very next words after Jesus said, you will have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus knows that we will sin and we will stumble and sin and stumble in bad ways, in accidental ways, in intentional ways. We're rotten. And I mean, this by Peter is really bad. You'll deny me three times tonight. But can any of us cast the first stone? We know from the rest of the story that when this prophecy from Jesus about Peter comes true in Peter's life, it says that Peter weeps bitterly. He wept bitterly. But even in that moment, the truth that, that started this chapter is still true, that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. When we sin and sin in bad ways, this is precisely when the mercy and love of Jesus is most clearly seen even in our bitterly weeping repentance for the thousandth time, Jesus knew we would fail. Jesus could have told us we were going to fail. Jesus knew Peter was going to fail, but he came to save sinners. And he calls us to love each other sympathetically in this way when people sin against us. It's not a, it's a profound truth. They're profound truths. They're not hard, it's, but they're profound. 